0: And our chapter for today is the Prophet Amos, Chapter 1. I'm going to introduce Amos to you in brief fashion, and then we're going to look at Chapter 1 itself. First of all, Amos. What a tremendous name, and Amos was a great prophet of God. He did not claim to be a prophet, but God called him and sent him. The book of Amos is set in the north. In 931, the kingdom split in two. When Solomon died, Rehoboam, his young son, came to the throne and could not handle all of the duties and responsibilities that he had been assigned by his father. He turned to his peers, youth, and did not heed the advice of his seasoned leadership that was around him who had advised his father. And he made a terrible mistake. This gave rise to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat who caused Israel to sin. He took ten tribes and began to be known as the Northern Kingdom. He set up two worship centers, one in Dan, the farthest area to the north on the Syrian-Lebanese border even today. Then he set up another worship center in Bethel, just north of Jerusalem in the land of Benjamin. And the scripture says he caused Israel to sin. Now, it's against one of those altars that a southern boy, Amos, went north. They already had a strike against him being from the south, from the kingdom of Judah, who had stayed true to the dynasty of David, who was of the tribe of Judah the son of Jesse, and Amos was sent by God or he would not have gone. He came from the city of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is about, I would say, 10 miles south of Jerusalem, just outside of Bethlehem, just a few, very few miles, very near the ancient mountain called Herodium, where Herod the Great ...would build a great palace, much like Masada. As a matter of fact, he was buried in Herodium, just outside of Bethlehem. And from the Mount of Olives, on a clear day, you can see Herodium in the distance. That's how close it is to Jerusalem. But that's where Amos grew up. He was a sheep herder. When you turn to chapter 1, then Amos identifies himself. These are the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders, the sheep herders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, this is important because... We cannot date from the earthquake because no one knows for sure exactly when it was, but Zechariah mentions this same earthquake. But we know that Uzziah and Jeroboam, Uzziah in the south, reigning in Judah, the southern kingdom of the dynasty of David, and Jeroboam to the north. This was not Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but rather Jeroboam second. They reigned in that period from about 800 down to the 50s, or at least Uzziah did, and Jeroboam was his contemporary. And together, they reigned almost as much territory as under uh, Solomon and David in the United Kingdom, where the kings of Judah reigned. It was a very successful the reigns of Jeroboam II and, and Uzziah were very successful reigns in the sense of economic productivity and in the expansion and consolidation of the territory of the land of the Bible that had been promised. But they had their own troubles. I date the prophecy of Amos somewhere around, oh, 755, 754, something like that. And it was a very short prophecy. Amos basically came north, gave his prophecies, and went back home because he was a sheepherder. He was not a prophet, not a son of a prophet, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But he was a sheepherder. And that means that he followed them everywhere that they went. He led them because Tekoa and Bethlehem is part of that country that is good for shepherding, but it's not good for almost anything else. It has uh, its good points, but it's not lush and green like the Galilee. It is not like Carmel, Carmel, the garden of God, the vineyard of God, literally, which is mentioned in verse 2, and because this prophecy says that the Lord roars from Zion, the Lion of Judah roaring from Zion, from Jerusalem. He utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the tops of Carmel withers. Now for Carmel to wither, which is a beautiful vineyard and lush forest, then it has to be a great judgment of God, a catastrophe, really. And so Amos brought what would be the judgment of God message to northern Israel. And it's amazing how he did it. If you'll notice in verse 3, He begins and he goes all the way around, all the way into chapter two, which we'll deal with tomorrow. He starts out and says with this formula for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. In other words, he starts not talking to Israel directly and to Jeroboam directly and to all of the kings directly, but rather, he starts talking about all the nations, ungodly nations around them. In verse 3, he deals with Damascus, the, the Syrians. In verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. There's that formula. So he deals with Gaza and Gaza's sin. For three transgressions, and for four, I will not turn away from its punishment of Tyre. That's in verse 9. Then in verse 10... The Lord says, for three transgressions of Edom, who was Jacob's brother, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Uh, and then in verse 12, 13 Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, which was across the Jordan River, just north of Moab. And for four, I will not turn away its punishment. What I want you to see is Amos goes to the king of the north, and he starts calling out all of the enemies of the north. He calls out Damascus. He calls out Gaza to the south, Tyre to the north. And to the west on the seacoast to Edom down to the south and around the Red Sea and on the other side of the Dead Sea. And then Ammon, which was in the area of Jabesh Gilead and uh, cross on the east. So he goes all the way around all of these enemies and says, God is not pleased with your enemies. And this is how he got his attention because he didn't, first of all, deal with the sin of Israel. But what he was doing is he was saying all of these people, God is interested in justice. You see, God's justice is not a theory, It's not a theorem that is debated. It's not something that is intangible. God's justice is tangible. You can feel it. You can taste it. You can see it. God is interested in justice as it relates to people. Now, we hear a lot about justice today that is not justice at all. It is an agenda that is ungodly that's covered up with some kind of fake righteous judgment. God's judgment and God's justice is always righteous, and it deals with treating people in the right way. Are there injustices in the ancient world? Yes. Are there injustices, or were there injustices in the ancient world? Yes. Are there injustices in our world today? Yes. Are there injustices in America? Yes. Are there injustices? Yes, yes, yes but not the kind of injustices that are being promoted by the woke left. That is a fake posture all the way around with just a lining of truth in it. All I'm saying to you is, wake up, Amos deals with injustice at every level. And he calls out all the nations around, but he calls out the people of God. You see, judgment must begin in the house of God. And Amos is going to get there. And then Amos is going to do his bidding, and then he's going to go back home. Why? Because he has sheep to tend. He has work to do, and God knows that. In chapter 7, as a matter of fact, in verse 14, Amos says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder, a sheep herder. This is what he did, and he was not some wealthy sheep herder. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? He says, I was a sheep herder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Now, the sycamore is a kind of fig tree. It produces thousands of of figs, but they are small. They're not the big figs like you think of. They're small. And because they are not easy to tend and not sweet like the big figs, you have to pierce them. You have to do it by hand, each fig on the tree, and then it ripens. Now, this is a fascinating thing. These grow around Jericho. This is why Zacchaeus was in a sycamore tree, in a sycamore fig tree. A sycamore is a fig tree, a kind of fig. They grew around Jericho and that area there. And, and this is where the sheep herders from up on top of the mountains of Bethlehem and Tacoa and all, they had to take their sheep during the summer months. Many times they would have to take them down to where there was uh, springs, and there were water that would, that would drain through the limestone and be in the Jordan Valley, and sometimes they would have to go as far away as the Jordan Valley. If they did, then those who herded sheep and had flocks of sheep, if they were doing it themselves, which Amos obviously was, which means he was not a wealthy sheep herder, he was doing everything himself, he was actually tending to the sheep himself, and so he would make a deal with the people who own the fig orchards, what they would do, these sheep herders, these uh, sheep breeders, they would come and say, look, if you will let me graze in your area here, then I will take your sycamore fruit while it's on the tree. And while the sheep are grazing, I will personally pluck all of those figs. I will put a hole in them uh, like is needed for them to ripen properly and get sweeter, I will do that for you. And that that's what they would do. They would work on those fig trees while their sheep were grazing in those meadows down there around Jericho where the springs were during the day instead of resting and doing what a lot of other shepherds hired out to do, they would do that themselves. And so Amos said, I was a sheepherder and a tender, that means he was a plucker of sycamore more fruit and so he was the one that would go out there and by hand take thousands of sycamore figs he would pluck out what he needed to, to put a hole in them so that they would ripen quicker and better and would release the sweetness and allow them to be fertilized. And that's how they grew. And so we know something of Amos' economic background by the cultural setting here of him being a tender of sheep and a plucker of sycamore fruit. Because of that, we know what he did for a living and we know about the time that he did it. We know about where he did it, and it was very hard work and very tedious. That meant he had to first tend to his sheep, and then when he got that job done, he had a second job so that his sheep could graze. He would pay the price and be all over those trees. Dangerous work in some degree, as he had to go up those trees and pluck these trees, and these are not small trees. The sycamore fig is uh, can grow into a good-sized tree. That's that's why Zacchaeus was in it. And so it could be very tedious uh, work. I mean, the H1 had to be done by hand. And so uh, the rich herders and the uh, rich people would just uh, hire that done. But Amos was having to do it himself. And all I'm saying is because of this, this was a working man. This was a man who earned his living by the sweat of his brow, but he was a man of God. You see, you don't have to be some educated prophet. You don't have to be some degreed theologian to be God's man. You just have to be God's man. That's what Amos was. He was a man of God of the common people, and he went on a mission from God. He got the work done, came back, and went to work. You see, this is God's dealings and the way he deals with people. He doesn't always deal with people the same way. We get the idea that God calls a man, he goes off to school, he's trained, he comes back, he goes somewhere, he does. Look, folks, that's the professional clergy. And thank God for all of those who are able to do that. But if this nation is going to be turned around, the Church of Jesus is going to be revolutionized and revived and turned right side up, then it's going to take men of God who already have jobs, they have trades, they have skills, they are what we would call blue collar and brown collar workers, white collar workers, whatever the case is, they are workers. They know what it means to get up in the morning and work hour after hour at this job, turn around and do something else. We We would call Amos a bivocational prophet. Do you realize most of the men of God who have ever lived have been, quote, bivocational? Do you realize in the state of Tennessee that I live in today, there are 3,000 Southern Baptist churches in the state of Tennessee. I'm just speaking in general terms. Two-thirds of those are from the Cumberlands and the Cumberland Plateau to the Smokies to the east. And the Tennessee Valley, that is in what we would call the plateau in East Tennessee. And out of those, approximately 70% are bivocational. That means they work and they do. And if we took their wife out of the equation, in other words, many of those who say they're full-time, they're in churches that are not paying them a full-time wage. They are living off of twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars 30000 and if their wife wasn't a nurse or a school teacher carrying their insurance, they couldn't do what they would do, quote, full-time. And so we label them as full-time. I would think there's another 20% if 70% are bivocational that I, of the number that I mentioned. I would say another 10 to 20%, up to 90%, would be bivocational if we took away the wife's salary. All I'm saying is... The Southern Baptist Convention, which at this point is still the largest of the evangelical conventions and denominations in America at this point, I can tell you most of those who are standing in pulpits are bivocational. They are just like Amos. They're working two and three jobs to do the work of God. And all of us who are blessed in any way to do something and uh, be paid for it, We need to look at ourselves as professional athletes, graced by God to do what we do and to get paid to do what we would pay others to do. And by the way, I've done that in the past. I've worked and paid others to let me preach and lead them. And that's okay. There's a time and a season for everything under heaven. All I'm saying is thank God and hats off to Amos. He's the prophet of God from Tekoa. He's not a prophet. He's not from the school of the prophets, that is. He is not a professional. He's a bivocational prophet. And what a mighty prophet he was. The lion roars out of Zion. For On The Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On The Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions.